Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome everyone to the Feathered Desert. Today our title is Splish Splash, Arizona Birds and Water. That's what we're going to talk about today, water in the desert. Take it away, Cheryl. All right. So all life on Earth needs water. Our Arizona birds need water. And in our southwest desert, where does the water come from that the birds rely on? The answer is groundwater. So most people don't know that 40% of Arizona's water is groundwater. And that is 40% of the usage. So that percentage is also growing. And when I was doing research for this podcast, I found myself in over my head with too much information and not quite enough of knowing how to put it all into a 20-minute podcast with a positive spin. So (laughs) I decided to lay it out, lay out the basics, which starts with groundwater. So Kirsten is going to lead us right into what is groundwater. That is a good question. What is groundwater? Let's talk about that. Groundwater is the water that is actually found in the cracks, the nooks and crannies, crevices, all those spaces that you find between rock, soil, sand, underground. That is groundwater. There is no underground lake, generally, for most places. It's not a big old reservoir down there. You can't go like kayaking in the underground lake. Um, Where it comes from is when rain falls, snow melts, or steam flows sink into the ground, the groundwater recharges naturally into the aquifer. And that leads us to the next question, what is an aquifer? Yes, what is an aquifer? So an aquifer is a layer of groundwater, excuse me, underground sand, gravel, or permeable rock where water collects. Arizona is fortunate to have two types of aquifers, the Colorado Plateau and the Basin Range. Um, aquifer. The difference between the two, stick with me here, the difference between the two is what they're composed of. Colorado Plateau is permeable rock. Basin Range is gravel, sand, and silt. The Basin Range aquifers cover the central and southern parts of Arizona. These unique geological features have allowed Arizona to accrue large amounts of water over thousands of years. Remember that it took thousands of years to accumulate, but it's only taken a few decades to nearly deplete. So let's look at our home in the Phoenix Valley. Kirsten's gonna talk to us a little bit about that. All right, so understanding why it's important about water in the desert, we need to understand where we're living. So the Phoenix Valley is a desert. For those of you who are listening, if you did not know that, it is a desert. A desert is where evaporation exceeds precipitation. So there's always a water deficit. Definitely, we're having that problem right now at the recording (laughs) of this podcast. We are definitely having a deficit. So water withdrawals by humans exacerbate that deficit. So water withdrawals from the surface and groundwater reduce and may even eliminate water flows to the point that streams dry up. And this affects not only birds, but fish, other wildlife, riparian vegetation, which is the plants that grow near the water, and our own enjoyment, of course, wilderness areas and our ability to recreate in those areas. It also affects us as life. We need water to live, just like the rest of them. So uh, other things that you can 
think about are the dams and the diversions that we try to use to make sure that we have water in the areas that we live. But the problems with putting those things up is that it can affect the seasonality of those water flows and that disrupts water flow for our wildlife, such as our birds, as we all know you love the birds. Fish, uh, once again, the riparian vegetation, which supports the wildlife, and of course, the ability to reproduce in a water-limited desert ecosystem. It's incredibly important for everybody to have access to that water in this area so that we can continue to live. And when I say we, I am including us as well. Yes, yeah, we need it as much as they do. Yes, so one of the things, of course, that we talk about in the Feathers Desert is how everything affects our birds. So how is Arizona water depletion affecting our birds? Well, <clears throat> It is affecting our birds, but I just want to, I want to point out two amazing facts about this state. First, Arizona is the most biologically diverse state without a coastline. Can we get excited about that? That's really cool. I mean, that is cool. It's third only to California and then Texas in the most number of different species that reside within or migrate through its borders. It's not even the size of California or Texas, No, but it has the, the matching diversity or just slightly less. Groundwater is what rivers and the riparian areas, which is the riverside habitat that Kirsten was talking about, depend on to, uh, depend on to support birds, fish, mammals, and plants. So those special places like um, that we like to go hiking or that you've heard about like Fossil Creek, that's an underground water spring that is naturally creating that water to flow all year round. The depletion of groundwater in creating a deficit that we can, is creating a deficit that we cannot make up. So natural sp springs dry up. The creeks and the um, streams do not flow year round. The fish die off, the insects die off, plants die off, and when this happens, birds die off. Migrants uh, stop coming because we are not supplying what they need and what they originally came um, up to, to enjoy. Um, wildlife is definitely affected by the water scarcity. And here's four birds that are affected by water scarcity and they're being affected right now. So the western yellow-billed cuckoo is endangered due to 90% decline in habitat along the Arizona western rivers. The southwestern willow flycatcher declined, uh, habitat declined dramatically over the last hundred years due to repairing habitat which is um, lost due to water diversion and drought and water diversions is groundwater pumping. Now, um, the Audubon Society, both uh, the Maricopa County and at the time the state, which is now the Southwest Audubon Society, they were have worked really hard to have protections. So these birds and their areas are protected, but minimally because groundwater is still being pumped near their habitats. Uh, yellow warblers, one of the most common birds along the Arizona streamside, cottonwood uh, willow forest that you find up by the Verde River in Cottonwood itself, is an example of a bird that we may see less of if our state doesn't protect um, our riparian areas. Uh, the summer tanager, its bright red males and yellow females are neotropical migrants that specialize in catching bees and wasps on the wing without getting stung. They're pretty cool birds. They are, and they're, they're vibrant in their colors. 
Um, you find these also in the old growth uh, willow groves of the Arizona riparian areas. So those are birds that we're not going to see a lot of if we don't um, mindfully watch um, our water use. And uh, Kirsten is up next, and she's going to uh, give us suggestions on what we can do. All right. Well, we all know a little bit about what we can do to, for, to conserve water. And the biggest thing we want to tell you now is don't give up. It sounds like we're never going to get anywhere and it's all gloom and doom, but don't give up. The situation is not yet unsurmountable. Um, whether we end up with our heads in water or ankle deep, it is within our control. And we would love to have a little bit more water. <laughs> so at home, there are very simple things you can do, like taking a slightly shorter shower. Turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth. Men, if you shave your face in the sink, uh, do it without the water on. That's what my husband does. He gets his razor wet, gets his face all done, turns the water off while he's doing that, and a little bit at a time. He rinses his razor after each swipe, but he doesn't leave the water running. You can use a dishwasher instead of hand washing your dishes. I know not everybody can have a dishwasher, and I know that sometimes we have dishes that can't go in a dishwasher, but do the same thing. If you've got to wash that pretty mug that you bought at the Artisan Festival because it can't go in the dishwasher, then wash it with a little bit of soap, get it wet, turn your water off. Wash it with your um, sponge, then rinse it, turn it off, put it in the drying rack. Don't let that water run continuously as you are washing that dish in the sink if it has to be done. Also, we can provide water for our backyard birds with small bird baths, water dishes on the ground, or even water feeders that hang. And our WBU Mesa store has some really great hanging water feeders. And I know that there's other WBU stores in the Valley area as well that has these great glass hanging water feeders that keep that water nice and cool. Yes. So landscaping is a big one. We want to stick with native plants. The plants that live in the desert know how to live without a lot of water. So this is a fancy word called xerscaping. We wanna do that in our yards. That also helps our birds. So if you guys have listened to our other podcast earlier about native plants, you know that native plants help our native birds. So that goes a long way with water conservation as well. We want to plant trees to provide habitat and shade. And stick with our xerscaping, our local trees. Palo Verde is a nice one to desert have in your willows. yard. The desert willow. Um, the shading that will come from these trees also helps reduce evaporation and the heat sink effect that occurs in cities and suburbs where we have more and more, um, less landscaping and more concrete. That is where that heat sink effect comes into. Um, when you are landscaping, using landscaping materials, try to use plant-based landscaping materials. Those keep things much cooler and uh, use less gravel when you can and more um, wood-type landscaping materials. Or um, uh, sometimes you can use a soil out mm -hmm. there or even just use dirt. Let your dirt just be dirt. Don't put gravel on top of it. Work with the community that you live in to plant more shade trees, maybe at a local park or along sidewalks using those native plants. Create shade in those areas that have a lot of cement already. This is a big one right now. If you're a golfer, encourage your local golf course to make some landscape changes to support water conservation and our bird conservation here in the desert. There's a great book called Welcome to Suburbia, written by John Marsloff who is an ornithologist, 
and he has done lots of different studies on birds in suburban areas. And he wrote that nearly everywhere golf courses increase the local diversity of birds. That to me was very surprising. Yeah. And I really want to support that. And yes. to show you guys here, our golf courses can be great local places of diversity. And it'd be really, really cool if our Arizona golf courses can be the bird hotspots here in our area. Marlsoff also notes in his book that where native vegetation is maintained, forests are conserved, and natural buffers around golf courses are developed, rare species coexist with golfers. Think about it. If you're a golfer and a bird watcher, you can do two hobbies at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> I think the people golfing behind you might be like, come on, we're golfing through. But uh, that's okay. It's a great place. And we know there's a little bit of a controversy right now with our golf courses and water conservation, but it doesn't have to be. So those oh. of you who are birders and you also love to golf, talk, sit down, talk to the people and see there's got to be a way that we can balance this out. And maybe using more native instead of um, stuff that's more exotic will help us uh, do some more water conservation. Other things you can do is join organizations that support and work toward appropriate water conservation or bird conservation, which essentially is one and the same, mm -hmm. such as Water for Arizona Coalition, our Western Water Action Network, and uh, the Maricopa Audubon Society, which they're the ones that just became the Northwest Audubon or South South. No, the the two states, uh, New Mexico and Arizona, um, their states joined together and became Southwest Audubon. Okay, so Southwest Audubon Society is also a great one to look at too. Yeah. Then on a national level, you guys can check out the Nature Conservancy, which is always up to date on everything that's yes. going on around the country. Yes. They're awesome. Yes, American Rivers, which is well about American Rivers. And then the Center for Biological Diversity. All of these will keep you up to date what's going on in the nation and tell you about programs that you can um, look at, maybe join, and even volunteer at. All right, so yes. one more thing from Cheryl. Yes, I just wanted to, encourage, like Kirsten uh, just did, I wanted to encourage our listeners to check out um, our links to the podcast. Uh, learn a brief history about the water in the state, the politics, and the need for change. Um, two things happened recently. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to balance each other out. But Mesa, uh, the city of Mesa just approved a data center on 196 acres. Um, it's Data centers use water. So it's supposed to use 1.7 million gallons of water every day for cooling. That's coming from our groundwater folks. So um, just being aware of what your city is doing and what's happening, I mean, that water is going to go to the data center. That means that's less water for you guys. Um, but change is possible because recently the Arizona State Legislature approved more than 100, and, excuse me, 53 million in uh, new bills for water-related projects. So, you know, we as citizens, we do have a voice on how um, money is spent, we just have to make our voices heard. And conservation has always been defined as sacrifice. I really would like to encourage you guys to look at that word as action. It takes so little from just a few people to make a difference. So um, if our uh, bird feeding um, heroes out there just, you know, take a little bit of time or do a little bit, we can accomplish um, so much more. And um, the, 
we'll all be better off. We'll all be able to have water coming out of our faucet and faucets and the birds will be able to uh, have a drink. So I just want to move on to the plant spotlight. I chose a plant I hadn't heard about in, in it, so I had to do some uh, research on it, but it's called the Desert Four O'Clock. So it's a perennial. It grows about uh, one to three feet high, three to five feet wide. I thought this was amazing that it blooms May through September. Low water use. And I'm gonna plant this in my yard because I was looking for, I just recently planted a desert willow. And I'm looking for something ground cover to put underneath it right. instead of all my water thirsty plants. So I stumbled upon this one. And this uh, graces our southwestern deserts. It's pollinated, which, oh my gosh, I got so excited. It's pollinated <laughs> by the sphinx moth, mostly. So it, it, blossoms are very attractive to also the broadtail and the rufous uh, hummingbirds. Plants have about a four inch diameter tubitous root that extends several feet below the surface and stores most of the moisture needed for growth and flowering. This plant just totally, I mean, I went down a rabbit hole reading about this plant <laughs> and, and, how, and got really excited. I cannot wait to plant it. The blossoms open up in the late afternoon and close early the next morning. So it blooms at night. Um, well, except on cloudy days or cool weather, it says it'll bloom. Um, which we haven't seen very many cloudy right. days recently. So, you know, that totally escaped my mind. Um, this is a sturdy perennial. It's long lived, it's drought tolerant, and it stands up to the heat. All things that I want in my front yard. It prefers sunny exposure, which uh, I have a Southern exposure. So this made me even um, more excited, uh, except for the hottest deserts. Um, so it might need a little water um, in the long run, but for the most part, um, it should do fine with what the rain gives rain gives us in parentheses or in quotation marks. <laughs> excuse me. And it seems to favor sandy soil um, among rocks, but is adaptable if the drainage is good. So the desert four o'clock works well as ground cover under. This is what I'm looking for: a desert willow or a Palo Verde tree. So um, and it's. Self-sows. So a lot of things that you'll notice with native plants is they self-sow. So you plant one and next year you could have three, which is totally cool and just fine with me. It's less money I have to put out and I want native plants in my yard. Absolutely. So I think it's an awesome plant and I didn't, like I said, I was looking for a plant spotlight and I just went down this hole with this plant and it's cool. And um, it, I wish I could show pictures of the plants, in, but we're a podcast, but hopefully I've described it enough that it's got you guys' interest. Yeah. And we'll put a, a, a link on there that you guys can see it on our um, show notes. And um, a note from me, when I lived in Maryland, I had a, a four o'clock it was not a desert, four o'clock, but it was a four o'clock. So they're in the same family. And it was really cool because you could go out at four o'clock in the afternoon and watch that bloom open up. That's where they get the name four o'clock. Yeah. It was very cool. <clears throat> I did read that, that there's more than, there's, um, more than one. They're regional. Yes. Yeah. And this was a regional native to Maryland. And the only thing that it had to fight against was the deer. And it didn't do so great with that because I got to see it maybe open once or twice and then my deer ate it. And then I was like, Ugh. but that's okay. It was, it came back the next year. And just like you said, I mean, they will um, self-sow. And for those of you who've listened to our podcast before, me, Lazy Gardener, yes. if I put one and I get four more the next year. Cheap gardener, cool. cheap gardener. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm very excited. I'm, gonna, I'm on the look for it. 
Yes. So, um, so it sounds like a very exciting one and, yeah. and great to have yeah. for ground cover to help us keep some evaporation from yes, happening. Yes, that's what I was looking for, um, evaporation and erosion, keeping our topsoil. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you guys for listening to our water conservation episodes, Splish Splash. And we hope that we gave you a little bit of uplifting news as well. We tried. We yes, tried. we did. We tried. <laughs> we would also like to shout out to Rob Clarkson. He's a wildlife biologist in this area. He contributed to some of the content of this podcast, as well as Gretchen Bobier. Um, she's a naturalist in the area as well. They both helped us with this podcast, and we want to say thank you to them. And we want to say thank you to you guys for listening. Yes. Yes. <laughs>